Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of November 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent. Uh, we'll get straight on here with all-cause mortality because we like to start upbeat, don't we? <laughs> well, we I have mean, to deal with the serious things, Mike, well, and uh, the, the, this, the other mainstream get any media worse want to deal with this. Indeed. Well, well, actually, for the first time, perhaps we do have a little bit, but let's just look at the right-hand side of this graph. Another week of excess mortality. Uh, and actually, The Telegraph has actually got an article, uh, finally. Uh, crisis as excess deaths soar to levels higher than during COVID pandemic. So let's look and see what they're saying. Excess deaths in England and Wales are currently running higher than in the main pandemic years of 2020 and 2021, figures have shown. Throughout October, there have been an average of 1,564 extra deaths per week compared to the weekly average of 315 in 2020 and 1,322 in 2021. Uh, they say that the latest figures from the ONS show that the week ending uh, October 21st, there were 1,714 excess deaths in England and Wales, of which only 469 were due to COVID or not, but certainly uh, attributed that way, uh, just 27% of the total. Uh, it's 16.8% higher than normal is what they're saying. But then we get to it. Uh, health experts have warned that some of the unexplained deaths are being caused by collateral damage from the pandemic uh, when operations and treatments were cancelled or delayed uh, as the health service concentrated on COVID. Uh, the government's stay-at-home, protect-the-NHS message also left many people who needed medical treatment unwilling to bother the health service or afraid they would catch coronavirus if they went into hospital. So if we just keep that one on screen for a second. Debbie, uh, first of all, uh, unexplained deaths is the term that the Telegraph uses, and yet there are no calls from the Telegraph to perhaps investigate the actual causes of the deaths. And the other thing is, in the, that second paragraph there, they're absolutely highlighting that the behavioural change message or the behavioural analytics message was, well, there seemed to be suggesting was a big part of the reason that people were unwilling to, quote, bother the health service. Exactly. And, and I think there are many, many reasons why uh, people are dying um, at the moment. But, you know, interestingly, the one thing that's missing there is vaccines. So no mention of vaccines, plenty of mention of delays getting into the NHS. And yes, there are a lot of people that weren't able to access the NHS. And I'm sure a lot of people have died waiting for treatment. We know that there are 7 million on the waiting list, but we're not even mentioning vaccine injuries or, or serious adverse reactions. We haven't even got an investigation into it. So the whole thing's just being swept onto the carpet until we get a full and, a full and thorough immediate investigation. We're going to be seeing stories like this speculating all around mainstream media and still no mention of vaccines. Debbie, I'll just come in a slightly different angle on that. Swept under the carpet, yes, but how has it been swept under the carpet? Well, we've been told for some time that uh, newspapers, media, even the BBC itself put under pressure not to report anything about damage from vaccines. And uh, yesterday I was able to speak to a gentleman who has suffered very severe uh, um, adverse reactions from uh, an AstraZeneca vaccine. He, he was in hospital for over 15 months. And uh, the BBC did send a reporter who actually spent some time with him, but that reporter never published, but did say uh, that he couldn't publish because the BBC legal team 
uh, were adamant that the BBC couldn't report on this. So swept under the carpet, yes, but how has it been done? Well, from the government itself, the government has clamped down on the truth. It's, yeah. it's despicable stuff. Okay, well, let's move on to this. And, and this is a notice being issued by the Department of Health uh, under Regulation 3 of the Health Service Control of Patient Information Regulations. And what are they saying? Uh, the Secretary of State has issued a notice under the Health Service Control of Patient Information Regulations requiring the following organisations to process information, that's GPs and NHS England. This notice requires that data is shared for the purposes of COVID-19. Uh, effective uh, compliance with the notice will be demonstrated by the use of open safely data uh, analytics platform. So patients, for patients, this means that their data may be shared uh, with these organizations in order to, uh, to in relation, sorry, to the uh, response to COVID-19. So this is basically in order to allow the government to claim that there is there are increasing incidents of COVID-19 over the winter period uh, because we're not doing the mass uh, testing program that we had before, uh, but instead GPs are now required to share patient information uh, with a particular register in order to maintain that uh, that narrative. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd say, Debbie, this is something you've been talking about for a long time now, is what is happening to our data. So at every excuse, they are sharing data. Well, for start offs, you know, I know a lot of people that have said no, they don't want their data shared, and yet they're still getting texts and communications from the NHS. So, actually, in reality, our data is being shared. And the register that you might be uh, referring to, Brian, is the CPRD, where the MHRA share all GP data. So, all of your GP data is going being fed straight back into CPRD at the MHRA. So, that's just one example, but clearly, our data is being shared everywhere. I might just mention the word Palantir, but that's maybe for another news. Thank you for that, Debbie. Now let's move on to uh, Ukraine. And this, this is RIA Novosti. And let's do a quick translation. It says, the hacker spoke about how he hacked the command and control systems of the Ukrainian troops. Um, so this is a pro, what's being described as a pro-Russian hacker, the nickname Joker DNR. Uh, he says that he's managed to capture the Delta command and control system, which is uh, jointly uh, set up by Ukraine and NATO. Uh, and that effectively is setting control for Ukrainian armed forces. It maps Ukrainian armed forces positions plus Russian armed forces positions and so on. Um, so if that's true, it's another so-called cyber leak, perhaps, um, which must be pretty devastating for the forces on the ground. Well, it'd be totally devastating, Mike, because not only uh, is it revealing the Ukrainian dispositions, it's giving the intelligence of what their view of the battlefield was, or what is as to where the Russians are. So this is a major uh, breach. And I, I find it ironic, a couple of days ago, we pointed out that the Americans were boasting that they'd got, um, uh, uh, what do we call it, IT experts in uh, operating in Ukraine, but um, this has happened. I think my, my take on it is the West for a long time has been on about cyber security and its expertise and 77 Brigade and all the rest of the uh, so-called experts, but there's been a certain arrogance that nobody else can really effectively play this game. 
Um, now we've got a hacker gone in there, and uh, yeah, I think this is a major security breach. Now, the hacker posted video of uh, of his hack, and of course, nobody knows, at least nobody in the general public knows what Delta looks like. So uh, we've got to put that caveat in place there. But by coincidence, that was published yesterday. Uh, the uh, government was pushing this out at the, exactly the same time, uh, talking about a, a brief history of Russia's destabilizing cyber activity against Ukraine starting in 2015. Yeah, yeah sorry, I, I just read the bit about shutting off power for six hours. I think they ought to pay attention to the fact that we're now over 40% of the Ukrainian grid shut down because the generation capacity is, generating capacity has been destroyed by the missile strikes. But I'll take your point. Yeah, but, uh, but in the meantime then, they decided to announce a six million pound support package to boost Ukraine's cyber defenses just in time, it seems. Uh, and so this is going to use world-leading expertise to protect Ukraine's critical national infrastructure and vital public services from cyber attacks, uh, money well spent. So is that another six million from the Foreign and Commonwealth, Commonwealth Office? Indeed, possibly. probably. Um, and uh, well, let's just briefly mention this. Uh, Brian, you know more about uh, what the circumstances around this were, but uh, this was the United Nations couple of days ago, Black Sea grain deal shipments on hold on Wednesday following Russian suspension. So Russia pulled out of the, the grain shipment arrangement at the weekend. They, they did. And the picture appears to be, and you, you gather this information from largely across social media, um, being as careful as you can as to what is being said and who's saying it. But the picture appear, appears to be that the, um, the sea drones that were launched against the uh, Russian fleet in Sevastopol uh, came through the channel, uh, which has been earmarked for protecting the grain shipments. And what the what is being said is that the Russians were able to obtain some of the wreckage of one of these drones, and they were able to extract data from the remains of the navigation system on board, and that enabled them to work out the point of departure for at least one of these vehicles. And the Russians are saying, well, if you're going to use the safe uh, channel, which is there for the grain ships, if you're going to use that to mount attacks on Russian territory, we are not going to play the game of allowing these um, grain exports. But it appears that they've now backtracked on this. Well, slightly. So let's uh, bring up the latest from the UN. Export of grains and foodstuffs from Ukraine need to continue, although no movements of vessels are planned for the 2nd of November under the Black Sea Grain Initiative. We expect uh, loaded ships to sail on Thursday. And then uh, Bloomberg reporting this morning that uh, Russia agrees to resume Ukraine grain export deal uh, and therefore the price of wheat fell because it had risen sharply uh, on the news over the weekend. Um, so uh, not clear what Russia yet what Russia's reasons for the U-turn are, but uh, nonetheless. Well, they've uh, made a point. They certainly made a point by doing what indeed. they did. Yeah. Indeed. Now let's move on to Armenia and Azerbaijan. And here is uh, Vladimir Putin uh, meeting the Prime Minister of Armenia yesterday. And uh, well, here is uh, Vladimir Putin meeting the President of uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, and uh, they were meeting in Sochi uh, in Russia. And they were trying to, of course, arrange a peace agreement because, as Alex was reporting recently, problems in Armenia and Azerbaijan. So this is what Putin had to say afterwards. I must say, frankly, not everything was agreed upon. Nonetheless, I agree with the general assessment that the meeting was useful and that uh, creates conditions for future, uh, sorry, for further steps towards the settlement of the situation uh, as a whole. 
Uh, we managed to agree then on issues of principal importance. We share the opinion that it was a very useful meeting. In my view, it created a very good atmosphere for possible future agreements on some principal issues. So uh, I'm not going to say any more about that at the moment. Alex is uh, the expert in that particular topic, so hopefully he will talk a bit more about that on Friday's programme. But it appears some positive progress Indeed. at least. Indeed. Now, uh, the Late Late Show in Dublin and RTE, um, the wonderful Christine Lagarde was um, taking part um, a couple of days ago. Brian, here she is, tweeting out, I told RTE's Late Late Show uh, on my trip to Ireland that defeating inflation is our mantra, our mission, our mandate. Uh, that's, we have to, that's why we have to raise interest rates because we have to tame inflation. Our target is 2% inflation in the medium term. Well, she wasn't just talking about inflation. She was also talking about Vladimir Putin. So let's just have a little listen to this. Let me share this photograph with people at home and, and here tonight. And, and let me ask you what you think of this man. And, and I'm not trying to be funny here. That's Vladimir Putin and you shaking hands some years ago. What's he like to do business with, like there, and to look him in the eye? What do you see? I think you, you, you point to the right thing, the eyes. He's a terrifying person. In what sense? In the sense that he's, he's in those days, and I'm sure that he has changed enormously because he was not as, as sick as he is today. I'm sorry to say that, but that's what I think. Um, he was this unbelievably super briefed person. So he knew his files inside out, didn't need his papers, didn't need anybody to prepare him beforehand. He knew it all. And I think it had to do with his um, you know, intelligence and, and spying um, previous life where you have to learn everything by heart and you don't trust anybody. But he wouldn't necessarily look at you in the eyes. He would just look at the table or look, look, look wherever. And then suddenly his eyes would uh, you know, go to you. Yeah. And he had this sort of flashing, freezing eyes. So that's why I'm saying that just, just terrifying uh, aspect about him. Um, and in those days, he was he was a different person. And now sick uh, in what sense? Why would you do things like that? Why would you do things like that? Invading a country, you know, having people killed, destroying the fabrics of a society. And, and failing because he has actually, you know, reunited the Ukrainians people. He has re rejuvenated NATO and he has certainly brought the Europeans together. So he has failed in that respect, but you, that's what he wanted to do. Do you, do you think he's mad? Yeah, no, I'm not a psychiatrist. No, I have no idea, but, but the, the, you know, anybody who is um, behaving in that way has to be driven by evil forces. What do you, what I shouldn't be saying all these things because I'm just a central banker, but that's been my <laughs> Where do we even begin? Well, I could say a lot. I mean, disgusting hypocrisy. And if anybody's looked at any um, close pictures of Christine Lagarde's face, they should have a look at her eyes because they're unbelievably cold. But of course, she's part of the banking team that are pumping, that's pumping in the money, creating the money out of nothing, pumping it in for the weapons and munitions to keep the war going. So the hypocrisy, I think, Mike, is unbelievable. Yeah, she said, who would do that? Who would invade a country? Well, do we need to mention Iraq or Syria or Libya or Afghanistan? We need, is there we any need, more to be said there? We need to mention all of those. But of course, the key bit is that, that uh, it's the banking cartel around Christine Lagarde, which are controlling events in the world. 
and uh, clearly it needs stopped, as you might say, Mike. Mm. Well, let's uh, follow through on that theme of where the power is, and we'll come back on Friday. You reported this, uh, which was the recent meeting between Bill Gates and Keir Starmer, and uh, uh, you came out with this particular quote, which we'll re read again. So uh, Keir Starmer was, was saying, or his spokesperson was saying, that he was pleased to meet with Bill Gates today and discuss a number of issues of mutual concern including how the UK best supports global health, equitable development, and how we use the goal of net zero to invest in science and technology to deliver the jobs and growth of the future. So that's all good words. Yeah, can I just mention, we do know that we spelt Keir wrong there, by the way. So we, apologies for that. Sorry, we spelt... <laughs> okay, uh, not a problem. Right, so uh, let's uh, go to uh, Breibart here because um, they were also reporting, and I've got to say, some really excellent reporting. So here's a lovely picture of the happy men engaging with each other. Bill Gates meets with UK opposition leader Starmer to discuss global health and climate. And uh, I particularly like this. On Wednesday, leader of the opposition, Sakir Starmer, met with master of the universe, Bill Gates, in his office in, in the parliament. So at least somebody's got a perception of uh, what's happening here, master of the universe. So this is part of the commentary. Um, the American billionaire, so it's referring to Gates here, has not commented on the meeting with Starmer at the time of this reporting. It also does not appear that Mr. Gates held any meetings with Prime Minister Sunak on Wednesday. So just an interesting little uh, pickup there by Breitbart. Um, a meeting between Sunak and Gates may present a conflict of interest, now he's Prime Minister, given the business ties between Microsoft and Infosys, the Indian tech giant that Sunak married into. Well, that's very interesting. So at least somebody's picking up the possibility that there's something not quite right here. But uh, it went on. It was reported last year, it, sorry, it was reported that during his trip last year, Gates also visited with then Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. So there's a problem with Gates meeting Rishi Sunak. Uh, it's okay while he's Chancellor, but not okay while he's Prime Minister. But as we're going to see, all of this is irrelevant. And Gates was pictured leaving number 11 Downing Street, then Sunak's official office. However, no details of the meeting were made public about what was discussed in the meeting. So at least Breitbach is able to pick up that something is happening here which we can describe as untoward. No minutes of the meeting, so what was being discussed? And of course, it's the same Rishi Sunak, whether he happened to be Chancellor or whether he's now Prime Minister. But let's have a look at uh, what was flagged up to do with the relationship. And Breitbach, to its credit, put a link in through to this press release from Infosys, and it says Infosys opens its gates to Bill, host Bill Gates at Infosys City, Bangalore. So this is November the 13th, 2002. Um, so we've got Infosys Technologies, leading IT consulting and software services, played host to Bill Gates. He spent half a day there. He met thousands of developers and uh, a thousand Infosions. I'm not quite sure what that is about, but I don't like the sound of it. And uh, that press release went on to say that according to the Deputy Managing Director and Chief Operating Officer uh, from Infosys Technologies, we're honoured to have as eminent a person as Bill Gates with us today. 
India's importance as a global software center is further enhanced by Bill Gates' visit. Infosys and Microsoft have been working together successfully to develop and support business applications that will best suit our clients' requirements. The Infosys Microsoft Enterprise Architecture Lab is a key initiative. So this is not just a meeting. We've got Microsoft and Infosys working together. And of course, this is intimately linked with uh, Rishi Sunak's family. So uh, let's come back to comment. Um, Breitbart said that while Microsoft founder is not a British citizen, he's worked closely with previous UK prime ministers, including Sunak's former boss, Boris Johnson. Indeed, just over one year ago, Gates travelled to London to meet with Johnson to launch a 400 million joint partnership with the government to bolster green investments in Britain. So we're back on the trail of Bill Gates and how this man, who is indeed not a British citizen, um, is able to simply mince into the country and influence the highest level of politician. Debbie. Very quick observation there, Brian. Um, today I noticed in Prime Minister's questions that they were wearing, some of the politicians were wearing wheat sheaths. And I found out that today is Back British Farmers Day. And Sakia Starmer was wearing one of these wheat sheaths. And of course, we know that Bill Gates has brought a, bought a huge amount of land with regards to farming. So just an interesting connection today. Not all the politicians. Rishi Sunak was not wearing a wheat sheaf to back British farming today. Sakia Starmer was. OK, uh, well, let's continue on. So here's a little bit more very good comment. Uh, while the Conservatives from Johnson to Sunak have pursued a radical agenda of decarbonising the economy by 2050, the Labour Party may prove a more fruitful ally for Mr Gates, given their pledge to invest $28 billion into green projects if they take control of Parliament. The party would likely be amenable to Gates' ideas surrounding global health, given their previous urging of Boris Johnson to go further with lockdown measures during the Chinese coronavirus crisis. So Breitbart, very interestingly, drilling into the fact that it seems that Gates is in control of a two-horse uh, race. Well, one horse has crossed the finishing line at the moment, but perhaps the real winner is to be Mr. Starmer. So if we just put a few more pieces together, um, this is one of the pictures which I find incredibly distasteful because effectively it's a billionaire's old boys meeting. Uh, but the Conservatives were pushing out some time ago His Majesty the King meeting the Prime Minister at Buckingham Palace. And uh, comment here about this particular meeting was Sunak has the distinction of being so wealthy with an estimated combined net worth of 730 million alongside his wife that he will reportedly be the first inhabitant of number 10 Downing Street to have a larger fortune than the reigning British monarch. Does that fill you with confidence, uh, Mike? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And let's remember uh, that uh, Tobias Elwood was very quick to say that the free market experiment was over and uh, that Richie Sunak was the man to bring forward uh, the reset. And that, of course, is taking us straight into the globalist agenda. Uh, but this was the headline from Breitbart that made me think that really they were starting to undersee what was happening. Coup complete globalist Rishi Sunak installed as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. 
So they were absolutely on the case. And uh, this led me through to this tweet from a Calvin Robinson, uh, another conspiracy theory crossed out spoiler. And uh, it pointed to a little video of Rishi uh, speaking. Now, I've got to say he was extremely well presented with gleaming teeth, and I'm sure it was pure truth coming out of his mouth. Let's have a look at what Rishi had to say a little while ago. Today, I'm proud to say that under the UK's presidency, the group of the world's seven most advanced economies, the G7, is launching a set of public policy principles for retail central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. Central bank digital currencies could be a digital version of money, a bit like a digital banknote that could be used alongside physical notes and coins. Unlike most of the digital money people use daily today, it would be issued directly by a central bank, like the Bank of England in the UK. And governments and central banks across the world are working together, looking into what having a digital currency might mean in practice. This includes issues that people care about, such as ensuring users' money would be safe and secure, that it could work with other ways to pay, would be energy efficient and available to everyone. A potential CBDC could offer businesses and consumers new ways to pay in the future. It's all part of the wider story of digital innovation that has delivered benefits to millions around the world and in the UK. The decision on whether to launch a central bank digital currency is for each country to make, and no G7 jurisdiction has yet made that choice. These decisions raise important questions about the reshaping of our economy, financial systems, and the way in which people interact with money and payments. That's why working together and careful evaluation with our international partners is essential. In the UK earlier this year, I announced a new joint task force between the Treasury and the Bank of England to look into a potential CBDC as a complement to cash and bank deposits. We're also hearing from firms, technology experts and others. Under the leadership of the UK, this report today will help support and inform exploration of CBDCs in the G7 and beyond. With these principles, the G7 is leading an important step change in the global policy conversation. The report covers a range of important matters, such as financial stability, cyber resilience, energy efficiency, privacy, inclusion, and tackling illicit finance. These factors should all be considered when designing and potentially delivering a CBDC that would be fit for the future. Our shared objective is to ensure that CBDCs would be grounded in long-standing commitments to transparency, the rule of law, and sound economic governance. The G7 will continue its work in this important area, working with others to enhance understanding and use of these principles. We're excited to be taking a leading role with G7 members in publishing this exploratory work, bringing money and finance into the 21st century. Well, I don't know how that made you feel, Mike, but I wasn't reassured at all. A CBDC salesman. Have you got your CBDC? Do you realise the benefits of CBDC? Uh, well, I, I realise what they say the benefits are, yes. Oh dear. Well, do we trust this man? Um, let's put him on the screen, complete with the uh, pearly teeth. I thought we should have the priorities, Rishi Sunak. This is my assessment of what his priorities are. Uh, let's have a look. Well, I think number one is his family and wealthy lifestyle. I think this man will protect that 
over and above uh, everything. Number two, um, India and his family billions, because of course those billions um, within the Indian business structure are what really support his lifestyle. So I'm pretty confident that India and the uh, billions that entails are going to be the second priority for him. Number three, he's going to support his globalist friends and business colleagues, such as Bill Gates, because they help keep him in power. Uh, number four, uh, he's going to support the globalist lobby, lobbyists and their groups, such as the World Economic Forum and the Trilateral Commission, because that's the political power base that's going to keep him in his lifestyle. Number five, he's going to support the Conservative Party because they really act as his minder and uh, possibly did a bit of grooming as well to get him into uh, number 10. No, uh, number six here, uh, he's already declared his support for Israel, so that's clearly a high priority for him. Number seven, he's already declared his support for the war in Ukraine and President Zelensky. And number eight, um, he's going to support the UK political establishment because that's also protection for him. Uh, viewers and listeners will note that what is missing is anything to do with the wider public in UK. And that is correct because I do not believe this man has the slightest interest in supporting uh, the established general public in UK. Simply not in his playbook. We'll see in the coming weeks. Okay, let's move on to Rusi. And uh, they published this uh, today, uh, sorry, yesterday. Um, Furthering Global Britain, an overview of UK engagement in Eastern Africa. Uh, and this is what they had. They're launching a new Rusi project, uh, Furthering Global Britain, reviewing the foreign policy effect of UK engagement in Eastern Africa, examines how the UK has deployed its development, defence and diplomacy toolkit in Eastern Africa in support of uh, a global Britain agenda. And of course, you've got to remember Eastern Africa absolutely uh, suffering under the weight of uh, various Islamic insurgencies and so on. Uh, but it is in receipt of lots of conflict, stability and security fund money from the British Foreign Office. Um, so James Karaoke was talking, speaking yesterday at the UN uh, and he said that the United Kingdom will continue to stand with Somalia, he was talking about Somalia in this case, uh, and we commend President Hassan Sheikh's determination to defeat al-Shabaab. Uh, and I wonder how much conflict, security and stability fund money uh, actually contributes uh, to the continuing insurgency by al-Shabaab. But anyway, that's for another day. But look, let's uh, come back onto the uh, uh, Foreign Commonwealth Development Office spending website, fcdospending.ukcolumn.org that we've set up this week and launched on Monday's programme. Uh, and I just wanted to highlight uh, one example that, that we found uh, it, with the, looking at the, at the data, and it's this, uh, Torchlight Solutions Limited. Now, this is a, a private security firm. We'll come on to them in a little bit more detail in a second. Uh, and you can see that there's been quite a bit of money spent with them over quite a long period of time, uh, up until April this year. Um, uh, but the unfortunate thing is that when we look at Torchlight Security, uh, Torchlight Solutions Limited, uh, they unfortunately were shut down as a company in on the 25th of March uh, this year. They filed for voluntary strike-off. Uh, and on the day, on the 25th of March uh, this year, the uh, all three directors resigned. So in fact, from that date, there were no directors. Uh, and therefore, uh, under the company's uh, legislation, the company had to cease trading because you cannot trade without directors. Now, the question is then, who... Uh, who is the um, 
uh, person that for the who are the people of significant control of this company? Well, it's an organization called Torchlight Group Limited. And when we look at them, um, they uh, well, they describe themselves as a leading global provider of security, stability, and rule of law solutions to address national and international challenges for governments and corporations. Now, why are we interested in this? Because uh, the Foreign Commonwealth Office, uh, in fact, made payments to Torchlight Solutions Limited, owned by Torchlight Group, uh, after the dates or on the date of dissolution, of the, or at least the date that the, the directors resigned, but also after the directors had resigned. So that company received money from the Foreign Office after it had ceased trading. So, well, you might say, well, perhaps that money went to Torchlight Group Limited, but actually when you look on the database, you'll find that Torchlight Group Limited has separate payments going to it. So uh, there's can't, there can't be that type of confusion going on. But coming back to Torchlight Group Limited, and we look at one of the employees here, a guy called Andy Miller. Uh, and thanks to uh, a member of the uh, UK column uh, membership uh, on the forums to highlight this for me. And Andy Miller described himself on LinkedIn as Senior Intelligence Advisor at Torchlight Group Limited. Uh, 22 years experience in security project management and so on. When we look at his career, we find that he spent, what's that, 21 years, three months at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office as a diplomat, uh, senior training officer for security, personal protection, fast stream entrance and foreign government agencies, police and British special forces. And in parallel with that, in another entry on his LinkedIn page, he was also working for the Foreign Office uh, in a political reporting role. I'm not quite sure what that means, but nonetheless. So, as I say, Torchlight Group, in receipt of its own tranche of money, uh, separate from Torchlight uh, Solutions Limited. And so this can't, there can't be any confusion about where the money was going. The money that was paid out by the Foreign Office after the 25th of March this year was going to a company which had ceased trading. And I've got to ask why. Uh, and so uh, we put in a Freedom of Information request yesterday, uh, here it is, and people can follow this on whatdotheyknow.com if they search for payments to Torchlight Solutions Limited. Um, and you can see the three payments on there, two on the 25th of March, one on the 4th of April. And I've just asked very simply, what were these payments for? And I've also asked the FCDO to, to, if it's normal for them to pay companies that have ceased trading. Uh, it's important, I think, when you're making these types of, of uh, freedom of information requests, just to keep it very narrow in scope uh, so that they can't complain about it costing them too much uh, to provide the information. But, uh, you know, there are many, many questions to be asked around uh, the whole issue of money being spent by the Foreign Office. And I really want to urge everybody again just to keep it, to, to, to look at that website, look at where the money's going. Look, research the companies that it's going to and the organizations that it's going to and make freedom of information requests and see what we can find out about where uh, the British government is spending its money abroad and can we correlate that spending with events that are happen ge happening geopolitically? Yeah, it, uh, the whole thing, Mike, is uh, the website is really excellent and this gives uh, UK column viewers and listeners, it gives other members of the public the, the opportunity to do the research. Uh, it's your money. It's our money. It's clearly not being accounted for properly. What is it being used for? We've now got the opportunity to take the lid off this. So really excellent work, Mike, by your good self and the team. Uh, okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. 
uh, or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do share material you find on the various platforms. Okay, well, we want to pop this one up because uh, we had a message into the UK Column from uh, UK CV family, uh, the group that are working hard to help people that have been damaged by the vaccine. So the message was, we're so very grateful to UK Column viewers for being so kind and generous in donating to our fund. With each donation, our members can see that people do care and that alone makes a huge difference. So thank you very, very much indeed to people who've made a donation and you can see that it's having a very positive effect. Uh, if you haven't come across uh, this fundraiser before, here it is. Um, so you can go to that page and, uh, and make a contribution if you haven't already. And we also want to highlight the good works of the ladies in Wales to fight the sexualization of children in school. And uh, Louise Collins with Liberty Tactics is doing her best to help them uh, by running a podcast-a-thon. So that's happening over two days, the 5th and 6th of November coming up. It starts 12 p.m. on the Saturday. And uh, this is to raise uh, money to allow these really brave and dedicated ladies to force through the legal cases to try and challenge this appalling, as I say, sexualization of the children. So you can go to fundraiser if you'd like to contribute to that. And we can see from increases in that total that people are starting to respond. So thank you very much. Now, just want to point out that there's new material up on the UK Column website. That is also thanks to the viewers because you are giving us the means to expand what we're doing. And uh, the uh, increasing content, the breadth of content is your work. So thank you very much. Just wanted to highlight that part three of um, Sandy Adams with Agenda 2030 is up. Uh, we've also got another article by Debbie, Mass Propagation, Death, Stress, uh, which is very good. And uh, Mike has also uh, put up a um, video clip taken from UK Column Extra uh, talking about the Ukrainian dirty bomb. And we just remind viewers, wherever you are in the world, that if you want to join in with our extra sessions, that is one of the benefits of being a member. Now, let's move from Agenda 2030 uh, back through to the World Economic Forum and um, Global Village Collaboration and the Metaverse. Debbie, you were uh, very astute in picking this up. Well, you know what? I'm not even going to say too much about it, Brian, because I know that you've got some video there, but I didn't know that this existed. Apparently, it was announced in Davos this year. The Global Village, who knew about that? The World Economic Forum's Global Village, which actually means the metaverse. And um, well, if you've got the bit of video, I, I really don't think I need to say much more, but we are all entering a whole new world. Here in Davos, uh, we have our global collaboration village that we've built with Microsoft and the World Economic Forum. We chose to uh, focus the example on one of the sustainable development goals and in partnership with One Trillion Trees, our team just created this amazing experience of the Sahel and the Sahara Desert's encroachment on the Sahel. And the feedback that we've been getting from clients is, is you could be told about the Sahel. You could be, you know, you could hear a lecture about it. You could see pictures of it, 
But to actually be standing there and to hear the wind from the desert, to be able to see the movement of the trees, to be able to, you know, the baobab trees, to be able to get the scale of them, to be able to, to, to see the fruit, you know, actually crack it open. Now suddenly we're having a totally different conversation because one, we're having that direct connection. We know that we're focused on each other. And two, we're, we are standing in the data, in the experience, in the context, and are able to then relate to it, talk about it, uh, and, and really drive a whole new level of empathy and understanding. Uh, and one, one, of, one of our clients who went through, I think, said it perfectly. These platforms are going to enable us to, to, to understand how the macro decisions we're, we're making globally are felt on a micro level in a super specific way. And I think that's, uh, I think that's exactly right and, and the real potential and benefit of the metaverse. Uh, De Debbie, and it doesn't stop there. <laughs> Debbie, before I let you comment, I just want to say for people to really grip this, please go and watch the three uh, segments of uh, the interview that I did with Sandy Adams because she takes uh, the audience through the detail of how this thing has come into being and where it leads to. Sorry to uh, interrupt you there, Debbie. Uh, Debbie. No, not at all. Sandy's, Sandy's, honestly, it's, it's, it's literally mind-blowing. I mean, this is just the start. You heard there, global decisions are going to be taken in the metaverse, and it doesn't stop there. You know, you'll be buying your house in the metaverse. Um, so real estate, um, there's plenty of little... Uh, videos. I don't know if you've got a clip or not, but I, I, it's quite a long clip. But there are some amazing things going on in the metaverse, and it's hitting us now. You know, this is real, um, and our children apparently are going to be spending three days of their lifetimes a week, three days a week, in the metaverse where there's no regulation. So I would urge everyone to watch Sandy's interviews because really, it's a very, very big subject and one that we should be taking a lot of notice about. Okay, thank you for that. We have Metaverse real estate. Well, it's one of the most exciting things that we've been dealing with in some time. So it's real estate that is virtual, where parcels of land is sold. And then some of the top retailers and businesses of the world, entertainers, create incredible activities on it and it's all locked into the blockchain for perpetuity. And this one is sort of less new than you think. People have been working on it and building whole worlds for a very long time. With that said, the power of the metaverse is going to be what users who are in the metaverse do. Because once again, I believe the land is more of a rounding error to the experience. So how fast do users have to move? Yesterday. How quickly are they going to profit from it over the next couple of years? If you are in a fierce competitive retail environment and you are in physical showroom space and you're on the internet but you're not using the metaverse, you're missing one of the clear channels in to sell product. So I believe that you absolutely need to be there today. Look at what happened with Gucci on the metaverse. They sold a virtual bag for more than the physical bag in the real world. This is not going away. And you could very well see, for example, in the real estate world, the use of digital twins to show space 
and also to look at how we do make an impact on sustainability in the world, modeling and running algorithms to see how buildings operate. If we don't have a Manhattan in the metaverse, that would be more surprising to me. We had the internet 1.0, which a long time ago was emails. Then we moved to the internet 2.0, which is really your social media. This is just a natural migration to a more physical approach to a virtual world. And I think it opens up a series of ways for people to interact with each other, sell to each other, and for innovation to move ahead. Well, um, my comment on this, apart from the fact that I believe the man is a very dangerous uh, man, I think he's very foolish, or he's been brainwashed to say. Um, Debbie, he, he said, uh, uh, driving empathy. We're improving empathy by actually isolating people in this terrible false reality. Uh, and he goes on later to say that they're connecting people. So he can't even grasp what he's talking about himself. But this drive to the metaverse is a reality. And as I'm going to show in a couple of slides in just a few seconds, um, we, we can see who's driving it. But what's your comment? I can't really add anything to that that you've already said, Brian. It's terrifying and it's here. Um, and I just wanted to bring it to people's attentions like Sandy has as well, because we need to be we need to be warning our youngsters. We need to be knowing what's coming up. I, I really can't add anything else to that except join the dots and you'll soon get to the conclusion that I've got, which is that the metaverse is not a place I want to be in. Uh, well, look, Debbie, just just very briefly before we move on, somebody in the chat box said this is bonkers um, and, and somebody else commenting on uh, it effectively having failed already because Facebook is losing money. But Facebook has renamed itself Meta because it wants to brand itself as being out front with this. But Facebook is is not what's driving this. We're, we're talking about a whole infrastructure around AI and digital twins uh, and the big uh, corporate uh, players and and uh, lobbyists and there's billions and billions and billions of dollars going into this already. Forget about Facebook; it's just entertainment. They are this this notion of the digital twin is is something where they're attempting to replicate the entire planet and it, they are putting money into it. So it's not something that should be written off. No, and you're quite right. You know, we've been talking about digital twins for a while. And, and then you've got to think about the medical metaverse as well. You know, this isn't just about buying real estate and sending your kids to school in the metaverse. This is about having operations being experimented upon in the metaverse as well. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. And um, yeah, what can I say? Can't add anything else. Okay, thank you for that. Well, just to ram home what's happening here, let's, you've got a sneak preview there. Let's pop up sort of who is driving this stuff. So we're back to the World Economic Forum. So that will bring us back effectively to, to Rishi and his boys. Uh, but what's the World Economic Forum got to say? To find this, you have to go into their segment, which is the fourth industrial revolution. And then you get to the headline, we're a global multi-stakeholder platform focused on inclusive technology governance and responsible, well, that's questionable, digital transformation. And um, this is how it is being done. We deliver on the ground impact at global scale through 16 centers across the globe by leveraging the efficiencies of network-based collaboration 
shared learning and accelerated time to impact. So this is very, very powerful people who are driving this behind the scenes. And uh, what interested me here was the World Economic Forum talking about their partners um, in the center for the fourth industrial revolution. And it says that the network benefits from the, general, the generous support of Motsepi Foundation Reliance Industries, as well as its founding partner, Salesforce. So I thought we'd have a quick look at that. Well, this is, um, this is the lady, the co-founder and chief executive of Motsepi, uh, uh, Precious Malloy Motsepi. And she is a remarkable woman because um, she's popped up as a businesswoman and philanthropist, Chancellor of University of Cape Town, but she's got a professional background as a doctor. She's into fashion. She's been to some of the best uh, schools worldwide, Harvard Kennedy School. She's a woman's leader. She's everything. This is a future leader, as Common Purpose would describe them. And we're to believe that this woman is helping to drive all this. Uh, here's Reliance Industries, and what caught my eye was that it's one of India's largest private sector companies with a consolidated turnover of $44.7 billion. And where is it based? India. So that's a nice little connection back into perhaps um, the uh, Rishi Sunak empire. And here's Salesforce, uh, leading customer relationship management company. Uh, leverages the combined power of the cloud, et cetera, et cetera. But where's it based in Switzerland, just which just happens to be home to the World Economic Forum and the Bank of Internet Bank for International Settlements. And let's just end this segment with a very short video clip uh, with somebody warning uh, about where we're going with currency, which of course uh, digital currencies, which is a key part of that. And I'm going to say a big thank you to Sonia Poulton for this little clip. Very recently, this government passed what they called a gagging law. Now, if anybody, imagine if our money's tied up in a cashless society and we go against their gagging law, for example, we speak out, they'll press a few buttons and we won't be able to access our money. We will turn into riots. I say no to a cashless society. It's our money and we... Right, not a stop it now. So I noticed that they were the uh, two men there in the background were busy smirking as uh, Sonia got into that. But re in reality, her warning is very accurate. Um, OK, now today is International Day to End Impunity for Crimes Against Journalists, according to the United Nations. Uh, and they're all about countering threats of violence and crimes against journalists uh, to protect freedom of expression for all. Well, the British government is very excited about this. Uh, and so they issued a joint statement uh, by the embassies of the UK, the US, Germany, France and the EU uh, in Kyrgyzstan uh, about it. So, and this is what they had to say. Uh, today on the International Day to End Impunity for Crimes Against Journalists, we express our respect and support for all media workers. Journalism is a form of freedom of expression, which is a fundamental right. And I just thought to myself, uh, what uh, express respect and support are they uh, expressing for, for example, Julian Assange? Uh, or for all the journalists that are on the Mirk Verets uh, website in uh, Ukraine, or even for the likes of Richard D. Hall, who continues to uh, suffer the fallout from the BBC so-called documentary, the Panorama documentary the other night, because he's now had his, uh, his shop uh, in the Merthyr Tidville, uh market shut down permanently by the council, it seems. 
so no matter to what degree, whether you're in prison as Julian Assange or whether you're on a, a kill list in Ukraine or whether you're just experiencing uh, censorship, deplatforming of whatever type, uh, this is a direct attack on uh, journalism and uh, the British government uh, proving themselves yet again to be utter hip hypocrites. Yeah. And uh, well, we'll save the rest of the comment for another time, Mike, because yeah. there's so much to say on that. Let's just uh, bring in a new subject here. And thank you to a UK column viewer for pointing this one out. Uh, we're just going to cover this very quickly, but it just makes you think it's Islington Council, um, London area, and um, they are making some changes to how their communal heating works. Um, the little piece starts off with a description. What this is, of course, is instead of in, uh, heating an individual flat by having its own gas boiler, there's one central uh, heating boiler and that, that provides heating for the whole block of flats. So that's the basis of it. Um, and what they're essentially going to do in order to save people money because of increasing prices of, of uh, heating costs, is they're going to reduce the heating season. So it says we've reduced the he heating season by six weeks. It's now 30 weeks long. Commu uh, communal heating on most Islington estates will start on the 13th of October 2022 and end on the 11th of May 2023. Uh, sorry, 2023. Heating was on for around 18 hours a day. It will now be 13 hours a day during the heating. So. Uh, the point is really the power of the local councils that somebody comes along and makes outrageous increases into the in the cost of fuel, gas and fuels. Um, and then the local council is going to save you by telling you when you can heat yourself. And they're only doing it in order to save you money. So if you look at the bottom here, it says that these measures will mean the cost for the average tenant uh, from from that's uh, their statement, 28th of November uh, will be £17.40 uh, per week, saving the average household £34.88 per week if no action was taken to protect families. So it's all about protecting people. And um, then they just have a further statement, of course, saying uh, why these changes are being made now. And uh, we should remember that councils don't make the decisions people do. And uh, this lady is the leader of uh, Islington Council. And um, I think there's quite a few questions to be asked as to where this leads to, because are we going to have our electricity supply shut off by the local council, as, you know, to save us money, to protect us, to keep us safe in the future? Mm. OK, well, where do we go? We're back to the subject of uh, health Debbie, and uh, you wanted to say to people, um, watch out because it's the MHRA board meeting time again. Yeah, it's that time again, everybody. Um, the MHRA board meeting is scheduled for the 15th of November uh, between 10 o'clock in the morning and 12.40. If you just page into a search bar, MHRA event conference, you'll find the link and please let's make it a record attendance. Uh, it, it was very good last last time. It was 121. Uh, their board meetings up, so please click on it. Let them know that we are watching them. Let them know that we are watching them. Um, so please join me because I've I've joined and ask your question and um, look forward to seeing you. Okay, excellent. But 
but on a more serious note well i mean the mhr is a serious note it's i'm absolutely shocked to see a story um about children children in the uk that have been um jabbed I, I don't know why they're being jabbed in the first place because we've got no mandate to jab children between the, the ages of 5 to 11 but shockingly 36 children between 5 and 11 received their vaccines at um, a pop-up clinic in Southampton and they were overdosed. They were phoned the next day and told that they'd been given an overdose. Now, this is, I'm, we know children should not have this vaccine. It's not a vaccine, it's a gene technology. They do not need it. They don't want it. Parents don't want their children to have it. It's not mandated. It is not on the childhood immunization schedule. I am absolutely horrified. So, um, I mean, I, I don't know what to say. I just want it, and I know that Dr. Ross Jones has spoken up about this as well. Children do not need a vaccine, end of, um, especially COVID-19. But on a, a, a brighter note, we've managed to track down Dr. Henrietta Hughes, um, but we missed her because she was talking at this conference, the HSJ Patient Safety Conference in October. And you can see there some of the lectures, why aren't we learning from past mistakes was one of the lectures by um, Professor Mary Dixon Woods. I mean, absolutely unbelievable title, don't you think? And then we've got the Patient Safety Commissioner herself um, talking at this conference about her first months. Well, I've got a little bit of news about the Patient Safety Commissioner, but I'm gonna save that for next week's news. So bear with me on that. However, if you want to catch up with what she actually said, it'll cost you an eye-watering £199. So if you, you click the link, folks, just be aware that it'll cost you £199. But as you can see, HSJ's partners, um, very interesting because in the middle there, you'll see GS1. And that was the conference that Baroness Cumberledge was saying that basically yellow cards were going in the bin. And of course, you can see an affiliation there with the NHS also and the General Medical Council. But if you do hit the link, it will cost you £199. Horrifying. Yeah, that, that is quite incredible. Yeah, we, we've gone speechless unusually, uh, Debbie, because we're, we're talking and we're supposed to be talking about safety and suddenly you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay to hear them cover up the fact that there's no proper investigation into safety. Okay, let's yeah. move on. Let's move on to sideline then. Okay, so very quickly, I just want to bring up and, and I want you to remember the word data monitor. Okay, so that's going to be my first point of, of um, getting people to remember. Just remember this company, data monitor. I'm about to introduce you, I believe exclusively, because I don't know how many people are talking about this anywhere else, but to an insidious, abhorrent, unseen arm of Big Pharma which is pharmaceutical intelligence. Who knew that this existed? Now, Data Monitor are a market intelligence data analytics consultancy, right? So just keep that in mind because that then took me to the Cambridge Cluster. And the Cambridge Cluster are an integration of businesses and universities. So in this case, it's Cambridge University. They call it Silicon Fen. Um, and it's it's this fusion, again, Mike's fusion. And you can see that we've got companies here like Cambridge University, AstraZeneca, Apple, 
but I saw that paper on the right hand side called can mRNA bring its magic, I do hate the use of that word with mRNA, to seasonal influenza vaccines and that's pricked my attention because Vaccine Analytics, which was the company that was mentioned there, I thought I've never heard of this company before. So let's go and have a look at Vaccine Analytics and who are they? So I find out that they're a strategic research publisher in the UK. They've been going since 2007 and they focus on vaccines. So what they do is they build up a client base and they help their client base, which of course are big pharmaceutical companies, develop new vaccines and immune-based immune therapies. Now, when I went onto the website, if you can just flash back to that one slide again, if you go back to that slide, you'll see that I've marked a summer brochure with an arrow. If you go to that summer brochure, you can find out a little bit more about the company. And the only person that seems to be involved in this, along with another gentleman or a lady of the same name, is a John Savopoulos. Now, John Savopoulos has had 25 years experience with vaccine commercial analysis. He's worked for GSK and Data Monitor. Now, remember, we just mentioned that company, Data Monitor. Data Monitor and Vaccine Analytics, if you like, what they do is they publish, they get experts and they project what pharmaceutical companies will need to do next, um, where they'll need to look, what vaccine they'll need to, um, to, to develop. So this is what they specialize in. So let's see who the clients are of vaccine analytics. And you'll see the same old names coming up there, Merck, Pfizer, Cepi, Johnson Johnson, Novartis, and even Bavarian Nordic, uh, Nordic are there. And they're the ones, if you remember rightly, produced the, in inverted commas, monkeypox or smallpox vaccine. So you can see that this company have got a huge amount of clients and the graph that you may see that on the left hand side will show you exactly how much the vaccine industry has grown. I mean, it's soared. You can, and that's actually more for Mike, I think, um, because I, I know that Mike is so brilliant on data. But uh, look at the peak there and the companies at how they've absolutely shot through the roof. So. Then we go and look at a little bit more in depth of vaccine um, and analytics. And we can see that really Moderna, for example, have trebled into 60 billion. You know, this is huge, huge business. And what are they looking at in particular? Oh, well, this is very interesting. They're looking at RSV. They're looking at um, opioids. I mean, this is what they're projecting. We are looking at a company who are projecting vaccines for things that we are seeing either popping up now, like RSV and norovirus. Let's not forget norovirus. But these are going to be vaccines for opioid dependence, for depression, for mental health illness, for pretty much everything you can imagine. And they've planned it. You know, this company, who's heard of this company? But this man has got connections with all these massive companies, including CEPI. So that lands Bill Gates right at the door of vaccine analytics and data monitor and the whole pharmaceutical intelligence business. So this is massive business. And if we look at where we're going in the future, we can see that we've already got newsworthy stories out there on respiratory syntissial virus, for example, and 
also norovirus. So at the moment, you can, we always get the winter vomiting bug this, um, this time of year. A lot of hospitals go down with it. And the problem is, is it's very highly contagious. And if it gets into a hospital, they'll start closing wards and you'll end up with lockdowns. Now, we can already see that the UKHSA are warning of an increase in norovirus. They've also been warned, um, warning of an increase in flu, especially in children, and all respiratory infections. So respiratory syntissial virus and influenza. So now, oh, how convenient, all of a sudden, we've got companies that have been projecting this seemingly for years, but they've got all the vaccines lined up, ready to go. So, you know, this is an arm of, of, of pharmaceutical that I never knew even existed. But what's even scarier is the RSV, because we're going to see children getting pretty sick this, this winter. And my question is why, because most children go through respiratory syntissial virus. Some of them might develop bronchiolitis and they might need a little spell in hospital. One of my children did, but for the rest of them, when they had RSV, which was pretty normal, <laughs> most children have had it, they make an unremarkable recovery. So we do not need a vaccine. And yet what we can see coming down the line, terrifyingly, is more vaccines. So here we go with an RSV vaccine that's on the horizon. How fortunate is that? But even more terrifying, and I've only just found this, this came out of Endpoints News. Pfizer have declared that they're going to bring out a new vaccine, PH111, which is going to be given specifically to pregnant women. So what they're planning on doing is immunizing a newborn baby whilst they're in utero. Now, these are the plans ahead. I mean, they're absolutely, I don't know what to say. I'm almost speechless. But with regards to John Savopoulos, I would really ask all, because we've got a very, very clever audience, a very, very clever listeners and viewers, and I know that they'll all be deep diving into where does this man come from? Who is he? There's someone else in the company of exactly the same name that's older, but we don't know whether it's male, female, don't know anything. So if anybody out there can help me on the trail of pharmaceutical intelligence, I'd be super grateful. Debbie, thank, thank you very much for that excellent analysis. And I'll just reinforce that tiny graph that was at the bottom left of uh, one of the earlier slides. It showed a trebling of uh, revenues for the, uh, for the drug companies worldwide. So most of this is based on vast, vast profits. Um, and I, I, I think we can see that this is a likely driver over and above trying to do anything good for people but to be vaccinating uh, babies before they're born is, it's horrific. Um, well, I was gonna say, can we look forward to a relaxing Christmas? <laughs> but apparently not. Over to you, Debbie. Well, yes, I wanted to highlight, it's actually quite serious. Um, um, and I know that we're gonna talk about uh, more about this in extra, um, a lot more about this in extra. So make sure you tune in, because it's gonna be very interesting. But we have, the UK has now been put into a protection zone, the whole country into a protection zone with regards to avian flu. So of course, now we've got um, a Christmas turkey crisis, um, 
probably won't have turkeys, although people are saying they will be available. But more worryingly, you know, we're finding that birds are disappearing. Seagulls, for example, seem to have all but vanished. In my local um, area, the duck pond, swans have been dying. So a lot of wild birds dying. But what worries me more is they're starting to hint a little bit about this this strain of avian flu being transferred to penguins and also to seals. So when they start talking about seals and penguins, then they start talking about is it going to cross over into humans? So that's the next thing to look to look for. But this this means that anybody that's got a bird, all birds have to now be kept indoors. End of. Um, if you've got any birds in a shed outside, pigeons, etc., they've all now got to be kept enclosed and DEFRA have to be informed. So it's a story to keep an eye on for sure. And, and as, as I know, Brian, we're going to be talking more about this in extra. OK, thank you for that. Well, um, it's all as clear as mud, Debbie. Yeah, I just couldn't resist. I'm so sorry because Southwest Water come up with the most ridiculous, um, absolutely ridiculous excuses they tell me that the sewage that's coming out of their drain that's coming into my house isn't their sewage it's not their poo now <laughs> now a beautiful beautiful spot in st agnes in cornwall i mean literally it was pouring out pouring but oh no no of course not southwest water of course not susan davy ceo of pennon it can't possibly be sewage can it of course it's got to be mud it's a joke southwest water are a complete joke and I'm I, you know I would be laughing if I'm not horrified because as everybody knows I'm a repeated sewer flood victim but I just couldn't resist putting that in and my thoughts and hearts go out to everyone in St Agnes because quite honestly it is vile and if anybody wants to come to Cornwall do not go near the sea especially when it's been raining because southwest water will have contaminated it all with raw sewage yeah, Sorry. Just incredible. And you, you've seen some video of that, I believe, Mike. Yeah, it was in that uh, report that Debbie put on screen. It is horrific. Yeah. yeah. OK, well, we're going to end there, but you selected uh, three images for us to end on. Um, would you like me to cover those or do you, do you want to talk the audience through what you've got here? I'd Debbie? love you to, Brian. Thank you. Okay. You carry on. All right. We'll bring the first one on screen. It says truth does not mind being questioned. A lie does not like being challenged. And I think that's a really good statement. I love this one. Um, uh, it's um, a poster, top left, it says spirit, uh, then a big headline, World Economic Forum puppet costume. And the kit includes um, uh, vaccine sales. I can't read uh, some of the other smaller stuff underneath, adult size costume. Um, but of course, the star of the show is uh, our very own Canadian uh, president and um, prime minister. Prime minister, I beg your pardon. And uh, I, I just thought this was really good. So you can join the global elites by putting on an appropriate World Economic Forum puppet costume. And this one was also particularly good. It's a very heavily pregnant lady um, with a doctor. And she's saying to him, is it a boy or a girl? And he says will let the kindergarten teacher decide. Mm. Um, so the three of those uh, bang on the money, really, Debbie. Thank you very much for providing those. Well, that brings us to the end of today's UK column. Thank you all very much for joining us. 
There will be an extra time in a few minutes. And as we've said in the news, we'll be covering some material, some extra material to do with uh, matters to do with vaccine policy. And uh, we hope you'll join us in a few minutes. Thank you. Bye bye. bye, -bye.